Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. If you have a project or publication that you would like to discuss on the podcast, I would be delighted to hear from you. You can email me on press at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 15th of August and this is episode number 27. It is holiday time and we are taking a seasonal break from our regular shows. Until we resume our normal round of podcast interviews, I will share with you some of the talks given to the Antrim and Down branch of W over the last few months. This is the branch I co-host in Belfast. In this episode, the branch co-chair in Montgomery will give a talk on thoroughbred Irishmen, Blackwatch volunteers in Dublin before the First World War. This talk was part of a conference on Irish military traditions held with the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland and the WFA on the 9th of February 2017. I hope you enjoy the talk. Right, uh, well, thank you very much uh, for, for coming today. Uh, I should, as John mentioned, this is a joint meeting. It's, it's the launch of Wells Books, but it's also a Western Front Association meeting. Um, so if any of you haven't been to Western Front Association meeting before, there are some membership forms at the back, and we, we're very keen to... Uh, so again, we usually have the meetings uh, in, in, in the evenings, uh, second Tuesday, sorry, second Thursday of every month. So uh, I'm very, very, very pleased to, to see you again. My uh, paper here is just a pretty short example of a um, somewhat idiosyncratic uh, example and scale example of the volunteer tradition in Ireland in the years before the First World War. Um, we know from various sources that there were two small units of rifle volunteers who later became territorial force units operating in Dublin at the start of the 20th century, uh, where they shouldn't have been and where they had no business being. Um, one of the ways we know there was a parliamentary question asked by Joseph Nanetti, uh, the Irish National Party MP for um, <coughs> College Green, that's um, the other Lord Mayor of Dublin. Uh, and he gets a bit part in James Joyce's Ulysses, as a bit all he's remembered for these days, unfortunately. Anyway, he asked a question in June 1901 in Parliament um, about the status of a number of men who had observed being drilled at Portobello Barracks, Dublin. He was told by the Minister that the men were volunteers from the volunteer battalions of the Royal West Fusiliers and the Royal Highlanders, which is the Black Watch, uh, who were drilling for the purpose of improving their military knowledge. Now, some of you will recognise that's a very good piece of civil service drafting. Um, so they're quite pleased with that one. That's a full and frank answer, which tells you absolutely nothing. Um, so, um, why else were they were drilling? To keep their feet warm. Nanetti then went back to the supplementary question and pointed out that there was no legal basis for any free volunteers to be in Dublin, which is quite true. As the 1908 Volunteer Act or the, the subsequent Territorial Act in, in the Pride Ireland, and they were could be said to be illegally drilling. Uh, the official explanation was in, in the, sub, in the um, subsequent questions was that these were just happened to be members of Wilson Scott's volunteer units who just happened to be living in Dublin and were keeping up their military knowledge. Um, my study, which was based on the the Royal Highlanders Black Watch skies. Um, shows that this is not the case. They were largely Irish. 
but they came from a particular section of Irish society. They were, came from the urban middle classes. Uh, they were civil servants, insurance officials, and clerical workers. And the unit which they they were in was actually very like what were known as the class units, which uh, which operated in England of the volunteer force. That's to say, middle class, self-governing middle class units, rather like the civil service rifles, uh, for instance, in, in London. Um, so that's what we'll be looking at now. I should say I'm focusing on the the the, the Black Watch. By the way, the, the Black Watch, the Royal Highlanders are the Black Watch. Uh, as any as any very pedantic Scottish military historian will tell you Black Watch is, is the name of the tartan, not the name of the regiment, they're the Royal Highlanders, but they're generally known as the Black Watch. But if you were searching them, by the way, in any military records, you will find both being used. If you're searching metal cars, for instance, just a bit tip for you, you will have to search on the Royal Highlanders and you'll have to search on their Black Watch because not even the army knew what they were supposed to be put down as. So I focused on these Scots guys. I don't know anything very much about the Welsh Fusilier guys. They were attached to the 6th Royal Welsh Fusiliers, which is based in Clanberris, in a Welsh-speaking area of Snowdonia. I know they existed. I know a number of them went from Dublin to join the regiment there at the start of the First World War, and they served with 1-6 Royal Welsh Fusiliers. don't know anything else about them. haven't done any research. There could be some more material about them. So this is actually about the Black Watch Scots guys. It's based on some sources which I found in the Black Watch archives in Perth. Minute books, there's a minute book of the unit from 1900 onwards and a couple of rules, uh, rule books. Uh, the nature of the records means there's more detail in the later years, so it's really the period from 1908 onwards would have more detail about, so any samples here are skewered towards that later period. There was also contingent in Belfast, uh, of the Black Watch. Uh, I don't know very much about the Belfast guys. Most of the records I get are the Dublin contingent. So there's a few Belfast guys in, in, in here, but mainly it is about the guys that, that were actually in Dublin. Um, just a briefly in background about the volunteers. The Rifle Volunteers um, were formed in England in uh, 1859. England during the, uh, in Britain generally during the later part of the 19th century had periodic invasion scares. In spite of having a very strong navy, there was always this scare that if a continental force could get past the Royal Navy by trickery or by, by some, some means or other and get a, a soldier to actually land in Britain, there wasn't enough military force in Britain to actually resist any invasion because most of the regular army is actually overseas. The militia, as discussed earlier, wasn't particularly efficient, couldn't be called out that quickly and would generally refuse to serve outside their own county anyway. So generally there's all these books were written during this period based on the idea that, first of all, the French, start with the French, 1859 with Louis Napoleon, uh, when he became emperor, he was considered to be very dangerous. Um, it seems very ridiculous now when you look back on Louis Napoleon, but um, the idea that he was going to be a second Napoleon and could launch, had to launch an invasion. So it starts with the Battle of Dorking, which is published about 1860, a very uh, military no novel about an invasion force of French landing by dark in the night, sneaking into the country and then overrunning it. And you have this continuing series of these books throughout the rest of the century. Uh, the invasion of 1910, which is sterilised in the Daily Mail, uh, does great things with circulation of the, of the Daily Mail. Uh, the best of the books in that sort of genre is probably Erskine Childers, The Riddle of the Sand, still a very good book. 
But it's based on the same idea that the Germans can sneak a force over in the East Anglia during the fog when the Royal Navy's not looking, uh, land a, a couple of divisions, and they'll be able to overrun the country before the British Army's able to do anything. Another good is Saki's when William came, uh, which is also a good one. And probably the funniest of them is uh, P.G. Woodhouse's first published book, which is called The Swoop, or How Clarence of England, where he sends up the genre. Uh, very cleverly um, it's based on the premise that the Germans invade on, on, on a bank holiday weekend when there's a test match on, and the British just refuse to fight them uh, because it's a bank holiday and none of the army officers are, are, are available so the Boy Scouts have to fight them um, which is a send up of, of Sackers when William came where, it's a, where when the Germans overrun Britain but it's actually the Boy Scouts who implement Brexit who actually are the ones that actually save the country um, so anyway there's this sort of there's this periodic uh, invasion scares and the 1859 one leads to the formation of volunteer corps, rifle volunteers. So they sort of jump up more or less spontaneously. Um, the government eventually sort of recognises them. They're an eccentric bunch. They're allowed to, uh, to design their own uniforms, which is never a good idea. Um, but, you know, so you get this wild variety of fairly exotic corps and being set up, particularly in London. Uh, and you get periodics rising and falling off enthusiasm. Um, it's a typically British thing that people go from panics and getting wanting people to form these court acting and then sending up anybody who takes, takes, takes an interest in it. So they're very quickly being, being satirised as middle-aged men dressing up as soldiers to, to fulfil some sort of fantasy. Um, they are sort of reorganised after 1881 the children reforms they're sort of brought into the, the army system more and they become volunteer battalions of, of, of the regular army um, uh, and that's the way they stay up until the territorial force is created in um, 1908 now the volunteers they were not the, the scheme for volunteers is not extended to Ireland there was a big debate of this at the time there was some interest in Ireland in setting these up the government is generally not very keen on the idea, possibly a, a, a memory of what was happening as Tim mentioned towards the end of the 18th century and anyway training the Irish to shoot was never never, never seen a particularly good idea uh, so there's no particular move to set up volunteer units and similarly when the 1908 territorial forces set up the volunteers are eventually amalgamated with the militia and turned into the volunteer force which becomes volunteer, become, or sorry, into the territorial force but they become the Territorial Army in 1908 in, in GB. Again, that's not extended to Ireland, um, so you don't have uh, the, the formal structure there. In spite of this, as I said, we do have this unit in Dublin. I wasn't able to find anything in research on the origins of it. It is around from 1900. It's probably in existence a couple of years before that. The, the minute book, the surviving minute book, dates from 1900, but it's apparent from the book that the unit's already in existence. And at least one guy uh, came in later claimed to have been a member since 1998. Uh, so we don't know why they formed. We don't know when they formed. We don't know why they took this affiliation to Black Watch. Uh, don't see many reason. None of the, none of the Black Watch regular battalions were in Ireland between 19, between 1894 and 1906. So the Black Watch weren't there when this unit was was being formed. So why they decided to pick the Black Watch to be part of, I don't know. Um, it could have been just the, the prestige of, of the regiment, well known. And um, one historian, Helen McCartney, a historian of um, volunteers, has said, uh, remarks, the power of the kilt as a recruiting tool should not be underestimated, not least because it was an alleged effect on women. 
So uh, whether they just fashioned themselves in, 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 in kilts or, or what, I don't know, but they are around from about 1900 in Dublin uh, as a unit training there. They are not recognised. The Dublin Castle is basically turning a blind eye to them. Uh, when somebody like Nettie asks a question, they come up with these rather bland answers, uh, and the cover story emerges that there happen to be Scotsmen who are hanging around in Dublin. Um, they, uh, there's some sort of rumbling in the background from, other, from, from nationalist observers. There's a correspondence in the Irish Independent in 1913 about them and mutterings that this was an attempt to bring in the territorials to Ireland uh, on, on the sly. Um, so Dublin Castle sort of turns a blind eye. They do uh, make them t- give the rifles back. Initially, they were issued with rifles by the Parent Battalion, and which presumably they had at home. And in 1906, they're told to return those to the devil in Scotland, and they joined the Civil Service Rifle Club in Dublin and practice shooting there. Uh, but other than that, they say the Dublin Castle takes uh, t- t- takes no notice of them. Um, there is connection between the unit and the South of Ireland Imperial Yeomanry, which comes to South Irish Horse, which is also, which is formed uh, at the time of the Boer War. I mean, the origin of the unit may be in the interest in <coughs> increased interest in military matters, the alleged militarianism, militarisation of society happens across Western Europe in the decades before the First World War. People became more interested in military affairs. You've also got the Boer War, fusion for the Boer War. Although there's opposition to British participation in the Boer War in Ireland, and even a very small Irish contingent goes out to fight alongside the Boers, you also get a lot of people volunteering from Ireland to go out and join the British forces. So you get the... Uh, Imperial Yeomanry being formed uh, in Ireland. Uh, guys from North and South Ireland going out, and those eventually become the North Irish Horse and the South Irish Horse. And you get volunteers from the militia regiments going out. So there's an interest around that Boer War period in volunteering force for service. So the unit memory comes out of that period. And as I say, a number of these guys who were involved with the Black Watch I know were also involved with the South Irish Horse in, in Dublin. Why they didn't join the South Irish Horse? Possibly because they didn't have horses. Um, that that is an issue with the, Black, the South Irish Horse. It, 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 it is a cavalry unit. You need to be either to have access to a horse. Either you're from the from the gentry, or you're from a rural background where you can get a horse. So, as was goes to show, these were guys living in Dublin, urban guys. So they probably didn't have the option of joining a cavalry regiment. Um, so as I say they, they are in Dublin from 1900 there's a small contingent in Belfast um, which I know about but as I say I don't have a lot, a lot of records in it the, it's hard to tell numbers as well initially there seems to be about 30 of them in Dublin this expands out later and by 1908 there's about 60 or 70 uh, of them uh, and I have no idea in, in the numbers in Belfast um, they're attached initially to 5th Persia Volunteer Battalion of the Black Watches was one of these volunteer units in, in, in Persia in the rural areas of Persia. When the Territorial Forces formed in 1908, uh, they're given a choice of what units in the Territorial Force they can, they can attach themselves to. Their old volunteer unit becomes the Highland Cyclist Battalion. Uh, they decide not to join it, which is probably a wise move because they always thought the combination of kilts and bicycles was not, not, not really a great idea. Um, so they don't join that. They receive an offer to join the London Scottish, interestingly, so the, the Liverpool Scottish, 10th Battalion of the King's Liverpool Regiment. 
um, not the Liverpool Irish, you'll notice, but, but the Liverpool Scottish. They don't pick that. They go instead with another Black Watch battalion, which w- what becomes uh, the sixth territorial battalion of the Black Watch, which is also based in, in Perthshire. So they're then from then on attached to it. And the 1911, they're reorganised into, com- into platoons. So there's two rifle platoons in Dublin and one in Belfast, each of which is attached to a company of the Black Watch uh, battalion uh, in Perthshire. So the unit is basically a self-governing operation. It operates really like a club. If you look at the minute book of the organisation, it looks like the minute book of a tennis club. I mean, you you had to be elected a member of it. You paid a subscription fee, and most of the minute book is taken up with rising with the subscription fee, as generally is with voluntary organisations. You paid an entrance fee of five shillings, and then you're supposed to pay a subscription of of one guinea, which later goes down to 15 shillings and then goes up again and down again. And the Belfast guys complained at no end about the subscription fee because they weren't in Dublin. And, but it was a self-governing, it operated as a self-governing club. You had to be elected into it. Uh, you had to apply to join. You'd be elected into it. Then you applied to join the regiment. Uh, as I say, the numbers fluctuate, but it appears at its maximum extent there would be about 70 guys in it. Uh, in, in, uh, organised in three platoons with three officers. They're also uh, able to pick their own officers who receive commissions. Um, as I say, they get very little help from the actual, or they claim they get very little help from the Territorial Association in Perthshire. Um, probably legally, the Perthshire Territorial Association probably couldn't have given them much help anyway. Uh, but they too sort of continue to, to be involved with the battalion. They were supposed to be keeping a low profile in, in Dublin, um, um, which they were to a certain extent. To a certain extent, they, they weren't. Um, they, for instance, and sort of comments, I know they, they travelled to the annual camp every year in uniform from Dublin, which must have been quite a sight. And that is um, a photograph of the officer commanding, William Campbell, man who described himself on his attestation form under nationality as a thoroughbred Irishman. And there's the thoroughbred Irishman himself keeping a low profile, pictured in the Irish Times in 1914, inspecting the Boys Brigade in full regimentals. So as I say, they were, while allegedly they were keeping a low profile, I'm sure Dublin Castle winced when they saw that photograph appearing, um, they, they, they were known to be there. Um, right, so who actually were these guys? I was able to do some uh, number crunching um, using the, the records from the, um, the minute books and there's a couple of rule books uh, and using the 1911 census, uh, the procedure known to many of you to actually identify these guys and build up a picture of who they were and what they were. I will spare you the number crunching that went into that uh, on the tables, which are, I did an article on this a few years ago in Irish Sword, if you really want to ponder all, all, all the evidence and give you the headline figures of, of what the background to these guys were. Um, I was able to identify about 100 of them. Um, 80 of them were born in Ireland, 14 in England. Only four of them are born in Scotland. Okay? In addition to that, I found another five who had one parent or more. Uh, who, who was born in Scotland, but only a very small percentage of them are Scottish by, by, by birth or by ancestry. That's not to say that they may have not thought themselves as being Scottish. Uh, the man who, the guy called to a third Irishman is, after all, called Campbell. 
So they, they may have had a Scottish identity, as we all know, um, national ideas of identity uh, are, are can be quite complex. So they may have thought of themselves at some level of being Scottish, and certainly there's a lot of Scottish names turn up, Campbell, Drummond, Mackenzie, Alderdice, the Quitter, Fraser. So there, there's a lot of Scottish names turning up, and so they, they could have been people who thought of themselves as being in, in some sense Scottish, but they were actually, in the most part, Irish in the sense of being born in Ireland. Um, they're mostly living, um, they're mostly single men, very few of them are, are married. A lot of them are living in lodgings, uh, a lot of them are working in Dublin and are actually living in lodging houses uh, around Dublin. By occupation, um, majority of, well, just under half of them are civil servants. Uh, the rest of them, a lot of, there's another large group of about 18 who worked in insurance companies, small group worked for the railways. Most of the rest were in clerical um, or, or professional <laughs> occupations, bank clerks, cashiers, accountants, shop workers. Uh, only four of them that are able to identify could be described as artisans or, or, or in any way working class. So it's a middle class unit. And if you break down the civil service a bit further, uh, the numbers there, most of them are what are known as second division clerks. Um, the Welsh Service Organisation this day, they had the first division, which is still, still existing as represented amongst us today. But those are the people who, who went in as graduates at the top end. Then you have the second division, uh, which were people who were recruited from school, of, often from public schools or from grammar schools by, 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 by competition, by, by direct competition. So they form what is now, would now be the executive grades. Uh, so most of these guys were second division clerks, uh, so which meant that they were on a reasonable amount of money. Not the name Sarah Sarah never admits being a reasonable amount of money, but they were a reasonable income uh, for, for the time, reasonable middle class income. Uh, so they were able to afford basically uh, to have some hobbies. Um, and I say the unit then looks, if you look at the social composition of it, middle class, civil servants, professional class guys, single men, young single men, it does look very like the class core which were being set up in, um, which you would get in London and also places like Liverpool and Glasgow. Liverpool Rifles and Liverpool Scottish. Uh, in London you have the Honourable Artillery Company, the London Rifle Brigade, the Artists Rifles. But probably the one unit that it's most like in terms of composition would be the Civil Service Rifles, which uh, is a London-based unit which is made up of civil servants but also draws from insurance companies, the banks and the, uh, and the stock exchange mainly drawn from those guys who say in that second division sort of era and which acts as a social club. These units certainly, particularly in London, they were social things. You were elected to it. It was a precious thing to join. You got to get access to the club facilities. The Dublin guys didn't have all that because it's a very small unit so they didn't have their own club rooms or anything but there's a very important social element to what they did if you look at their minute book. They're forever organising whist drives, dances, suppers, dinners and all the rest of fundraising. They had sports games, sports, you know, hockey matches, all the rest of it. Uh, and they even have social members. There are members who don't come to the, to the parades anymore who, who, who stay on as sort of social members of, of the organisation. So it was, it, was, it was basically, it was a, a social club. They even have their own mess dress, you know, and they spend a normal amount of time in, in the minute book to setting a mess dress for themselves. And they go to things, they, they, you see them being mentioned, for instance, at the South Irish Horse Annual Dinners, they're, 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 they're attending it in, in, in the mess dress. So it is very much a social thing for young men who are, in many cases, living away from home in Dublin. Um, other distinctive thing about the community of the social breakdown um, was the religious uh, 
breakdown. Uh, we got about a hundred of them were able to identify religion. The census, only seven Catholics were able to identify. Um, now, you'd probably not be surprised to know that all of the Belfast guys identified were, were Protestants, but for the, for the Dublin ones, the great majority of them are also Protestants as well. Very few Catholics actually in it. And partly that reflects where they're from and where they're working. Most of them lived in Pembroke, Rathmines and Rathgar in Dublin, which were areas which had large Protestant populations. I mean, Rathmines is about 50-50 Protestant Catholic at, at this period. So they're coming from that part of the city, but they're, and they're also in occupations, the civil service, professions, banking, insurance, which were predominantly <coughs> Protestant. So, uh, so they're coming from the Protestant working from a Protestant middle class background from that, from that sort of group. Um, other reasons why you don't get Catholics, it could have been a, a deliberate policy of not recruiting Catholics. I don't think so. There, there's no evidence of that. Um, it could be many Catholics, of course, would be nationalists and nationalists often were ambivalent about the British Army and may not necessarily want to join the British Army, particularly one which has a Scottish ethos as well. Um, so it could, be, it could have been the political atmosphere as well. But it could have been the fact that it's a semi, it's an unofficial organisation sort of keeping on the radars. They didn't publicly recruit. Any recruiting would have been done by uh, word of mouth. So it was people recruiting people they knew, people that they worked with. Uh, and as they're working in a largely Protestant workforce, living in a largely Protestant area, it's not that surprising that they're picking up the guys that they're recruiting are actually going to be largely Protestant as well. So that is the makeup of the unit. Um, uh, and I should point out, I mean, we uh, mentioned earlier, Tim uh, showed a picture of YCVs, just as I thought. That's a picture of the <coughs> London volunteer corps or London Territorial Battalions, uh, the, the elite London Territorial Battalions. And that grey uniform, that's a civil service rifle there. But the uniform will look familiar. It's, that is, I think, what the YCV uniform is based on. To a certain extent, I would have thought would be these London uniforms. The London Volunteer Corps did have this distinctive grey uniform. They, they, they carried on the tradition from the rifle volunteer to design their own uniforms. Uh, so even the, that's the London Scottish, also in grey uniform as well, uh, so grey or black. So, and in fact, the one of the one of the brigades in the territorial force in London is actually known as the Grey Brigade uh, because it has these elite uh, their uniforms in. So, um, that is probably you know maybe one one sort of thing that's feeding into uh, the volunteers uh, around the formation of the brigade. And certainly, the YCV were mentioned. The YCV set up as, as a body for young men from middle class or respectable artisan <coughs> background. So I think the, the, there's possibly an influence there in the uniform. Um, what happens in the war? Well, all when the war breaks out, as far as we can see, all of the Irish section guys. Uh, report to the unit in Perthshire. They, they're all called. They're, they're called up, and they all report over, over there to one uh, six Black Watch. Uh, now, what happens to the territorial force during the war is a bit complicated. When you joined the territorial force in those days, um, you didn't have to serve overseas unless you took what was called the Imperial Service Obligation, which you volunteered to that you would go. The territorial force's main job was home defence. They were supposed to defend Britain from all these German waiters and, 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 and nannies were supposed to be uh, infiltrating in. 
Um, so, uh, so you couldn't be made the serve abroad unless you, serve, you signed the imperial service obligation, and you couldn't be transferred to another unit. If you went to go abroad, you had to go in your own unit, which was a problem. If the whole unit then didn't sign up for overseas service, the war office was a bit of a problem. And there was pressure put on territorial uh, regiment at the start of the war to volunteer en masse, which I don't think worked particularly well. The story of one black watch battalion when the colonel prayed them all in the morning and said, we stay on this parade ground until everybody has volunteered to go overseas. That worked as well as you would expect with a bunch of Scotsmen, so he didn't get his overseas unit out of it. Uh, so there were these issues uh, there. And one of the things they did in the end was they set up second line units so they set up a home service second line battalion, which for the guys who serve at home, that became, two, in this case, it would be two six. One six was then the guys who had volunteered to serve overseas, but to bring those overseas battalions up to strength, they had to recruit. So they're actually recruiting guys directly into the territory battalions. What's an interesting point is a lot of these guys then go out as territories aren't necessarily territorials, as far as I can see. And in fact, there, there's correspondence actually, and you know, with the Black Watch, where there's guys who wrote, guys said, you know, he'd lifted the, the, the territorials several years before the war started. When the war broke out, he wrote back to them and said, "Can I rejoin?" They said, "Yes, and bring any of your mates with you." Uh, so they were actually recruiting to bring the the, the units up the strength, so they sent overseas. And there emerges with one sixth this Irish section, and you see this little advert in the. Um, in August 1914, the Irish Times saying that the guys, you know, there's an Irish section of the Black Watts, and we want somebody to give us a um, terrier, uh, as a mascot, a well-bred Irish terrier, about 12 months old, to bring into action as a mascot. Hopefully, the poor dog didn't go into action with them. Uh, but anyway, so there was a distinct Irish section uh, which is built up, and it's it's a mixture of the territorial guys, you know, the guys who go over there were in the territories, and other guys in the north of Ireland who have volunteer. And I found some evidence when I was going through the papers of, of these guys. For instance, there was a letter from a bunch of bank clerks in uh, Derry and Buncana who wrote in August 14 to the Grand Black Watch and saying, we're bank clerks from Derry, we want to join the Black Watch, can we? And he said, yes, come on over. So there's this recruitment from the north of Ireland going on, and I'm not quite sure where, you know, how much it's officially being organised or how much it is spontaneous. Why are these bank clerks in Buncana? decided to join the Black Watch, uh, I have no idea. Um, but this is going on, and they built up a substantial Irish presence uh, in that particular battalion. I did a sort of number crunching with soldiers died in the Great War, and by my figures, um, well over, I think it 11% of the battalion casualties are Irish-born. So there is probably at least one company in that battalion which is largely <coughs> Irish. Now, the number declines thereafter. If you look at 1718, it declines down to only 2-3%. But there's a substantial Irish presence uh, in that battalion. And there's other recruiting I know I picked up uh, going on. Uh, recruiting with this Irish Times Green Returns in Belfast. It mentions men joining us the volunteers, national volunteers, uh, etc., etc. Arrangements are being made in Belfast in this recruit for the Home Service Territorial Battalion of the Black Watch Highlanders, Royal Highlanders. So there's recruitment going on, certainly in November 1914 in Dublin, but you notice it is saying they're being recruited for the Home Service. So this is how they're getting away with Basically, these guys are supposedly recruiting for Home Service, for the second line battalion, to serve at home. So they're not in competition with, say, the Ulster Division, which is also recruiting. That's the theory, but in practice, there's nothing to stop these guys once they get to Perth from taking the Imperial Service obligation and then going overseas, and that is happening. And there's a photograph of some of the Belfast boys. Um, in the early days of the war, 
some of whom, and I know from extra, some of them are actually pre-war territorials. Charlie Zachary, this guy, has a very interesting career during the war, but just an extra for another day. Uh, it's certainly a territorial, but some of those other guys I don't think are. These are guys who just volunteered and, and, and gone over. So uh, that, that's going on there. And later on, uh, it's in 1915, it talks about a, a party of, of the Cameroonians recruiting uh, in Belfast. So the Cameroonians are recruiting, the Seafords are recruiting as well. Uh, again, I think, in theory, they're recruiting for home service, but in practice, they're probably going into battalion. So it's an interesting point to note, there, were probably, there was a, a Irish presence in 51st Division. That, the, 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 that was the division that the territories eventually go into. And it's interesting, just, just thinking about this the other day, when there's discussion about the future of the Ulster Division, when um, they want to amalgamate the 36th and 16th Division, Carson comes back and says amalgamate the, th the 36th Division with the 51st Highland Division. Possibly he's aware there's, a, there's already a North of Ireland presence in the 51st Division. didn't work because the 51st Division didn't need any help with recruitment. They recruited quite well, actually. But so, there, but so this is, you know, that there was actually some sort of North Ireland presence there. And if only somebody was writing a book on recruitment in Ireland in this period, we could find out more about this. Um, right. So, conclusions. This is a very small sample. It's a very small unit from so I'm reluctant to, to come to too many very profound conclusions about the existence of it. Um, it is an example of this volunteer tradition but, uh, of people volunteering for military service, but it's also an interesting, you have a new class emerging, urban, largely urban, professional, middle class, or lower working class young men who really don't have much of an outlet in Ireland. They wouldn't be hanging up the social scale to become militia officers, because that's traditionally come from the gentry. They probably wouldn't have been that comfortable serving an ordinary militia battalion. Uh, and really beyond that, there's not much options in Ireland for units to join. There's no official territorial force. Um, they, and it's one of the reasons why you possibly have things like the Young Citizens Volunteers being set up, you know, to pick up the energy of these guys that was supposed to be attracting that sort of class and giving them something to do. And possibly it's, you know, it's one of the, possibly one of the motivations behind things like the Irish Volunteers and the Ulster Volunteers, apart from the political motivation, there was, you know, a group of young men who didn't have an outlet for these more interesting impulses uh, and, and were able to, you know, weren't able to probably use them. So we have that tradition and it's a, it's a new class emerging. The other one is possibly worth looking at is this Scottish tradition. You know, um, there does seem to be an interest in joining Scottish units. Uh, how extensive it is, not, not quite sure. Um, it's a bit of a mystery why these guys in Dublin picked the Black Watch out of a, out of a hat to join, um, but it, it is there. So, uh, and in the wider context of the First World War, it's worth bearing in mind that as well as the three volunteer division 10th, 16th and 36th there's also men from, a lot of men from Ireland joined other units for, what, for, for whatever reason so it's not, it's not the whole story so I shall leave it there because I'm conscious of keeping away from your coffee and then uh, we'll reconvene after coffee You have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman, 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.